Today is a special episode of our podcast, an opportunity for you to listen to a virtual salon where I was interviewed by CBS correspondent Jim Axelrod. Check out his creds in the show notes, but he's a terrific journalist and a friend. He and I live in Montclair, New Jersey, and our local bookstore hosted this event. It was like a virtual book tour with a fabulous journalist. Nearly 2,000 folks joined us. We thought you'd enjoy it and find it valuable. The audio is not perfect, but the content is first rate. Enjoy. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. Learn more at joangary.com. I'm a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. There are over a thousand folks that are uh, joining us tonight, and they're joining us from like everywhere. <laughs> um, you can see it in the thread, um, but we're not just here in the United States, but Canada and around the world. And you may not actually know where we are. So we are in a, a town called Montclair, New Jersey, which is about 15 miles west of the Empire State Building. And it's about 40,000 people. And Margo's business, which has been around 20 years in its current location and probably for another 10 or 15 in its previous, is one of those small businesses that make a community a community. And one of the things I was thinking about, Jim, as we were getting ready to talk about, uh, about the book is how nonprofits really are the bedrock of every community we live in. You know, whether you're from Seattle or Woodstock, Illinois, or Vancouver, or Singapore, welcome from Singapore, holy mackerel. Uh, you don't often think about it, but I think about our own town, Jim, and I think about our library and our Y and our International Film Festival, and I think about arts ed programs like Jazz House Kids, and I think about uh, Tony's Kitchen. I think about... Um, the congregations in our town, the houses of worship, these are um, central to what, a, what makes a community and central to our humanity as a community. And I think the same, I'm sure, is true for everybody who's watching tonight. Which is pretty good jumping off point for our discussion. One of the things that I, I picked up from the book that really jumped out at me was that there are 12.3 million jobs in the nonprofit sector in the United States. So that's more than 10%. I think that's what you were writing of, of U.S. employment, third largest sector behind food and retail. It's, it's not a, there's this, this thinking of, oh, isn't that nice? She's in, or he's in nonprofits. It's not, oh, oh, how nice it is. It's an essential part of how we live these days. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I kind of think of myself as a bit of a nonprofit evangelist and Evangelical is not a word I would typically ascribe to myself, but um, I think people just don't know, right? Is I think people just don't know that statistic, right? Is that um, there are 1.5 million nonprofits in this country, and they are in many ways the backbone of this society of ours. And I think it's also where leadership lives, and I think the reason I feel so evangelical about it is because I feel like folks who run nonprofits don't get the resources that they need or the moral support that they deserve. And 
the rest of the world just doesn't get it that they think mm-hmm. they it's just really nice. Like it's so nice. You volunteer. Right. Isn't that, I wish I had time to be on a board, but I'm too busy or, you know, you're really lucky. You have a job where you get to make a difference. No, enough already with the nice. This yes. is vital work that keeps our society healthy, sane, beautiful, all of those things. So, and I got to tell you, I loved reading this book so much. Not even being in your space, it was anyone from any walk of life who reads this book is going to be forced to think about the way they walk through their professional worlds. What, what was your purpose? So the point of writing the second edition was that I'd actually learned a lot from the time I wrote the first edition, and I felt like I left a lot of stuff out. So How much time between? Uh, three years. And I also felt like if I could write the book during the pandemic, and I could work with a publisher to get it out by this time, that maybe I could offer board and staff leaders kind of mm-hmm. a 2021 GPS device, mm-hmm. right? That is a combination of, like, like, if you read this book, so you know that it's not clinical or instructive. I mean, it's very instructive, I think, and very actionable, but it's really story-based. I mean, there aren't too many, like, business books or best practices books that open with, you know, a line like, I nearly killed my development director, right? Because, because I'm talking about how incredibly obsessed you get as a nonprofit leader to do the right things. But I felt like I was learning things in the last three years that I thought were really important to share. And I felt particularly important about small nonprofits and particularly important about boards. So I don't want to sell short the degree to which there is some how-to in this book, because there's a lot of specificity with how-to. But I want to start with a, a broader topic. The word that kept coming back to me as I read this book was your reference of how messy, messy life is in a nonprofit. What were you getting out there? What is inherently messy about life at a nonprofit? So the first thing I want to say is that messy, I don't mean messy as a pejorative, and I don't mean it as a word that lets you off the hook. Mm -hmm. What I mean is that you have this concoction where you have staff who are um, usually under-resourced, probably not really super well-paid, if paid at all, that they rely on the efforts of unpaid people, volunteers, and they're actually, their bosses are a group of people who are not paid at all, typically are not nonprofit people, and are um, brought on to um, supervise you and give and ask for money. And when you take that recipe and then you add passion and emotion to it, it's just messy, right? Volunteers, are they going to show up? What do I do? I'm a a type A control freak executive director. I like doing things myself. My board doesn't show up for its meetings, right? And I am deeply passionate. And, you know, I think emotion is one that uh, is sort of the the double-edged sword a bit, Jim, in terms of the nonprofit sector because it drives you and it can also sort of blur you a bit. Okay. So for people watching and listening to you to manage passion, which by the way, let's with any organization 
let give me a bunch of passion. We can, you know, we can shape that. Thank God the passion tank is full. But how, how specifically, give me some bullet points about how we manage and harness passion most effectively. Well, it's actually an interesting question because I think, um, you know, one of the things my book does is it actually reminds people about the fundamentals, right? So you have to stick to the fundamentals. You have to lead with intention. Um, mm. Passion mm. can sometimes cause you to think that everything, everything is equally important all the time, right? And so you have to learn how to prioritize. I often joke that nonprofit leaders think that prioritizing is a four-letter word, but it's actually <laughs> it has many more letters than that, that they actually have to prioritize. At the same time, they have to fuel the passion, right? Because I don't know if you've ever been on a nonprofit board, but if you've ever been on a nonprofit board, I my passion needs to be stoked so yeah. that I can get out there and be the best champion ambassador for the organization I can possibly be. So it, it's this kind of kind of cool balance of navigating the passion by making sure that you are prioritizing and saying, you know what? I can't be all things to all people. I can't do everything that big donor wants me to do. I can't put on another special event because my board thinks I should, right? I got to keep that North Star vision. I got got that North Star on my mission and I got to be true to it. And I've got to say yes to some things. And oh my goodness, I've got to say no to things. Well, it sounds to me like also, I had this great old producer who sort of broke me in when I started the news business. And he, he always used to say to me, assumption is the mother of all screw up. Like, don't assume. And I'm listening to you. And I'm thinking that anyone who's running a nonprofit, an executive director, probably assumes that everyone coming to that organization has this passion base. It's interesting to hear you say, no, 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 no. Don't assume that even that tank doesn't need to be refilled from time to time and do things to keep people's passion stoked. Yes, because the work is hard, Jim. The work is Mm -hmm. really hard, right? Mm -hmm. And so I often think that there are activities that nonprofit leaders, board and staff engage in two different kinds. The kind that actually deplete your gas tank and the kind that fuel your gas tank. And, And you end up doing a lot of stuff that depletes your tank. And yeah. when a lot of times nonprofit staff will ask board members to do things that feel depleting. And so you've constantly got to be juicing that up for people. Is it, you know, I don't know how many people know this, but you have this pretty significant part of your career is spent in a for-profit corporate world. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that and how that sort of suited you to impart some some order to the messy. Um, yeah, so I think, um, you know, I started um, uh, out of college on the management team that launched MTV back in the days when they actually showed music videos. Yeah. And, um, I hate and, to say I remember that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know you do. <laughs> and then went on to Showtime from there. And like many people who get involved in nonprofits, there's some personal thing that that kicks it, right? And for me, it was my spouse and I decided to have a family. And, you know, I began as I was going through my professional career to start to think, you know, I I feel like I should really do something to advocate for my family. And so a job opened up at an LGBT organization called GLAAD, 
which focuses on how the media tells the story of LGBT lives. Um, and I thought media and storytelling and do something for my family. And, you know, the only thing crazier than the fact that I applied for the job was that they actually hired me because I had no fundraising experience. And here I was thinking, oh, my God, what a joy and a privilege to get paid to do something that matters. And I thought I'd do it for a little while and then go back to from whence I came. There was no looking back for me. And I think what I brought to it was some discipline from the for-profit yeah. sector. I was known to be a good manager. I was known to be a very good writer and communicator. And I did learn some of those things like prioritizing and budgeting. And, you know, so I did come in as somebody who was sort of a, an executive generalist who was lit up like a Roman candle about the mission. And, you know, of course, I arrived like many of the people in this, in this thread, arrived to an organization that was in the financial dumpster and dug it out and felt like I had, after I left, felt like I had a lot of lessons to share because I had been all of you, right? And then I got, it was on a board and I'm a donor. So I sort of played every position on the field and I just felt so passionate about the meaning and purpose that one can derive by being affiliated with a nonprofit that I just wanted to get the word out on it. Um, the word you just used was mission. I just heard you say that in your answer and you talk about it in the book at length. So let's talk about what makes a mission, a successful mission statement. You refer to mission statements as the North star of any organization. Tell me a little bit about the thinking behind the critical importance of the proper mission statement. So I can tell you what goes wrong. It's a statement that at its best actually tells me what you do that is unique in the world, right? That, that thing that says, if you went away tomorrow, there would be a gap that nobody else would fill. Mm. And, you know, we do X. So I, I usually think about mission statements as we do X <clears throat> through Y in the service of Z. Uh, it should become a, a, a bit of a, a, of a North Star. We tend to do a fine job of wordsmithing them so that they could become completely unintelligible. But at their very best, they should be this thing that says, we do X through Y in the service of Z. So, you know, glad. We, um, we, tell, we work with the media to tell the stories of LGBT lives in a fair and accurate way, in order to end discrimination based on homophobia and gender identity. That's what we do. That's all we do. We don't do anything else. That's our North Star. And it allows us to prioritize, to lead with intention, and to make choices about what programs make sense and what programs don't make sense. But the GLAD mission statement brings up a very interesting point. Sometimes an organization's mission statement must evolve. Absolutely. So I can give you two quick examples. One of them is GLAD, right? Is that when GLAD was started in 1985, the only images of LGBT people, if there were any, were all negative, right? Um, they, they were very defamatory. It was in the height of the AIDS crisis. And so the mission statement was to promote positive images of LGBT people in the media. You know better than I do, Jim, that that's, that's, that's the job of a PR agent, right? And that Actually, once you get a, once you actually get some images out there, you want it to be fair and accurate. Another example, 
at God's Love We Deliver, which is an organization in New York City that delivers delicious and nutritious, specifically tailored meals to people who are largely homebound with chronic illnesses, began as an AIDS organization. But they decided Mm -hmm. that there was a need for them to do broader work. So yes, it can change over time. And by the way, that's where boards come in. And I want to make sure that um, while we're talking that we don't we don't miss the fact that um, boards play a really, really critical role. And I know we have a lot of board members in the house. So one of the most important pieces of this new book is a bit of a call to action to nonprofits. And I'll start with the board members. Board members need to understand that they actually have a very important job. And nonprofit leaders, the staff, they need to stop enough already with, could you please be on my board? I have a seat and I need to put a butt in it. Enough already with that. You've got to carefully curate your board so that you have the skills, the expertise, and the attributes you need to complement the staff. And you need those people to have a connection, a tie, and a passion for the mission. The mistake we make time and time again is we look at board service from a place of scarcity and that we undersell the responsibility because for some reason, we think that prospective board members don't want to do important things. They do want to do important things. They want to find meaning and purpose. I mean, one of the big lessons of 2020 is that people were hungry for meaning and purpose. People kept saying to me, you know, I think I should stop recruiting for board members during the pandemic. Are you kidding me? Right? They don't even have to travel to the board meeting. And it gives them some sense of purpose, some sense of, I'm trying to make some sense out of this ridiculously crazy world. And this gives me something to hang on to. And I think we just don't understand that when we ask people to volunteer, that we're actually giving them a gift. It's the same with donations too, Jim. When you ask someone to make a donation, you're giving them the opportunity to come closer to important work. But let me underscore something here, Joan. At every point of what you're talking about, outreach, whether it's getting the right board members, whether it's... um, and we'll talk more about fundraising in a couple of minutes, but it all rests on a foundation of storytelling. That was another big takeaway for me of the book that I loved so much that it's not just a head transaction when you're getting people involved. It's a heart transaction, and you must be able to tell a story. One of the reasons I think that I... um, I'm able to work with organizations and get them to think about fundraising in a different way because it's all about the story, right? When someone says to me, will you do a training on teaching us how to ask for money? I'll say, no, actually. (laughs) I'll do a, I'll talk to you about how to exercise the storytelling muscles of your staff and your board, right? That what has to happen is you actually, this is about igniting that passion, right? Is that you meet me at a cocktail party and you're going to tell me, about your organization or your congregation, right? Um, Or the why as a community. It's not, what is it? It's a home, right? It's not just a place where I I go and I, I, I curse the elliptical machine. There's something more to the why, right? Right? It's not just a list of services. It's a, it's a space. It's a place. It's a community, right? And I've got to be able to tell a story because what I think about is I think if you take a credible messenger, 
and you teach them to tell a great story, credible messenger plus compelling story equals a new stakeholder. And that could be, it could equal a check, right? Um, it could uh, equal a new board member, a new staff member, a new volunteer, right? But, but if we don't tell the stories of our organizations, we don't give them the opportunity to know that people are out there leading and doing meaningful work and wh what that makes people want to do, I want what you're having. Can I have mm -hmm. what you're having? Mm -hmm. Right? You do important work. That's an amazing story what you told me about um, about the work that you do to, to find a cure for AIDS, right? Like, it, it, like, that's meaningful to me. I think it's also sort of super important as a takeaway from this conversation for people to, to think about language. You talk about a group that says, what do you do? We bring thousands of families hope each week. That's a nice story. And it's simple and it's not jargon-based and it's not, it, everyone can get right to it. And I think, I think it's a pretty good reminder for everyone watching. Like, make sure you're telling your story in ways people can access. And use names, use real, like, use names, tell the story. I, you know, I could tell you about Eileen Isaacs is on this, uh, on this thread, and she works for a, a, an organization that works in the food insecurity space. I rode on a truck with their organization. And that truck driver had been driving that truck for years. Mm. And we went from stop and pick up excess produce at supermarkets. And we delivered it to different locations that are on their route. Well, I don't remember the guy's name. And I, Eileen, if you're in the thread, you could pop his name in. He's probably still there. But let's call him Manny, right? So Manny says to me, hey, when you load the produce from ShopRite into the truck, keep the lettuce and the peppers and the onions over here on the right-hand side because it's fajita day. At the pantry, at the food kitchen in Passaic. This guy knew it was fajita day, right? So, and all of a sudden we deliver them and I'm like, I hear it's fajita day here, right? And there's a Edgar. line of people, right? That's his you name, Edgar. And, oh, she says, <laughs> yeah, Edgar, right? Edgar, he was awesome. But you know what? I could say table to table, picks up excess food and delivers it to food pantries around Essex County. I could say that. That's what we do. Or I could tell I could tell you Edgar's story, and I have you at hello. Yes, you do. Because I want to be with Edgar. I want to be with the guy thinking about fajita It day. was, by the way, that day, it was about 400 degrees below zero. And I, I thought to myself, I'm not going on the truck that day. And I decided to go on that truck. And you know what else I learned? There's a lot about in the storytelling that you do. I also have a thing called Did You Know? That actually mm -hmm. brings people closer. Right. You know, Edgar told me on that truck that day is that the county with the greatest degree of food insecurity was the county I live in because of Newark. These are my neighbors. That's what storytelling is about, because it actually connects the head and the heart. And I think it's a, a really important reminder for everyone tonight. Whatever story you're telling for whatever nonprofit you are, you are working with or for rethink the language you are using to tell the story because it will benefit every part of the functioning of that organization. Something I, I, I would love to chat a little bit about, because I know that um, so many of the people who are on this call had a really, really tough 2020. And it is actually because of that, 
I really wanted to just do, if you don't mind, a little bit of a shout out about what the nonprofit sector did in 2020 and some of the takeaways for me, because I think it would be really useful for people because those takeaways really inform for me what 2020 should look like for your organization. Because one of the things I would hope is, is this conversation, this book um, can lead to conversations in your organization about what did you learn about your organization, its superpowers and its kryptonite from 2020, and what are you going to do with it when you move into 2021? Um, and I, and I want to say, there's two things I wanted to talk about, um, is what we saw was this sort of crazy juxtaposition between exponential need and a hunger for resources. Never were nonprofits more badly needed. And never did they struggle more for resources. And they did remarkable things, like heroics. Somehow or another, they took their handful of small change and they made amazing things happen. On the flip side, I think it also put a spotlight on some cracks in their foundations. So think about this. 70% of those nonprofits we talked about, Jim, have budgets under half a million dollars. 50% of them, have no more than a month's cash reserve. Close to 10% of them are technically insolvent and they still did remarkable things. The other thing that they did that I, 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 you must carry this with you when you go into 2021 is they were nimble. They were innovative. They tried things. So there's a couple of, it sounds like there's a couple of board members from the Princeton area in the house. There's a senior resource center in Princeton Right. Think about this. It's 2020. You got a you got a senior resource center that one of their big objectives is to bring people together to so they don't feel isolation, to offer them services. Right. Shuts down. They decide to go virtual. Okay, virtual with old people. (laughs) Virtual with old. Right. (laughs) Older than us. Right. So he gets volunteers from the college area to teach instructors how to teach online and actually teaches hundreds of members of the Senior Resource Center how to get on Zoom. And he's got this program called the Evergreen Forum, which are these high-end classes for older people that are taught by instructors from Princeton and other places. Well, what happens is his attendance skyrockets because the people who can't get to the Princeton Resource Center, they can attend. They get people from outside the geography to attend. And so fixing the problem actually changes the nature of how they do their work. And what I'm afraid of is that in 2021, there are going to be too many board members who are going to say, so when is it that we're going to go back to normal? Right. Right. Right? So amazing things happened at Temple near Tamid, our congregation, right? Incredible, creative, nimble ways of doing online services. It was wonderful. Sitting at a high holiday services virtually, watching it on TV and being moved like I've never been moved before by a worship experience because precisely as a, as a reaction to the pandemic, I mean, why would you want to leave? Something that worked better than it ever has before. Take the core principle and apply it. Right. So board members of Temple Near Tamid and any other places that do services, you're not going back. I mean, you'll go back 
And yes, right. it will be lovely to be in a, in a space and hug and pray together. But you have to take that innovation with you. You have to because it's working. There's an intimacy about virtual that people don't get, mm-hmm. right? Right? Is think about, think about your annual gala. This is another crack in the fundamentals of, of nonprofits um, is that most nonprofits are 50, sometimes 70% reliant on an annual gala that goes away. I went to more, I went to several online special events that were fabulous, moving, powerful, curated, beautiful, because it was all about the program. It wasn't about, okay, what should the um, centerpiece look like, right? Or, you know, don't make the program too long, says the volunteers, because people like to get back to the open bar. So taking Nimble with you, marketing Nimble to your boards is so, so important. So if we have a headline from 2020 into 2021, I got five words. Deal with messy, be nimble. That's what you're telling us. Yes. I feel like I'm about to ask uh, Michelangelo about sculpture, but I need to ask you about fundraising. I need, I need some tips that people watching can take with them about both the art and the science of, of the ask. So there's, a, there's a, I think, a very good chapter on fundraising in the book that reframes fundraising in a way that doesn't provide cover, but it actually reframes it in a way that I think about it. So, you know, I took my job at GLAD and I had never asked for money before in my life. And my development director, the one I nearly killed because I overworked her, said to me, it makes people feel really good to give to causes they care about. Well, I am a pleaser. Okay, let's start pleasing people, right? So the key to asking people for money is knowing that they have some kind of connection to what you do, right? So that the lead has to be, it can't be completely cold, right? So a board member says to me, you know, my next door neighbor has some affinity for museums, the museum mm-hmm. guy, and I'm, and I'm on the board of the, uh, of the arts museum. So there's a connection. So there has to be a, there has to be a hook. Now, figuring out how much to ask for is that sort of a technical thing, but it depends, right? If you're, if you're actually asking somebody for some amount of money at a higher level, you're going to do some kind of homework about where they give to other organizations, right? But it starts a little bit like this. So my name is Joan, and I'm a board member at uh, the Montclair Art Museum, and I feel such a sense of privilege. I'm making things up now, by the way. I have this memory... My grandmother used to take me to museums and, and it evokes something for me to stand in a museum and she'd stare at a picture for the longest time. And we'd talk about what was happening in the world at the time that painting was made. And so I got this, not just about art and beauty, but history. And so that's why I joined the board of the art museum. And we have this, and I just, if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you a quick story. And then you tell a quick story about Edgar, the docent there, right? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. You know, being on a school trip. And that's what we do here. And you might not know that we do a lot of this on a budget of X, that we hope to in the future, over the next year or so, we hope to do B, right? We hope to do this B thing. 
to reach more people. We'd like to add another program, right? Wouldn't you like to go on that journey with us, right? Help us bridge from where we are to where we want to go. Would you journey, like to know bridge? Mm-hmm. Would you like to know more? Can mm-hmm. I invite you to join me as a donor at the Montclair Art Museum? It's an invitation that they can say yes to or they can say no to. My job is to ask, their job is to decide, right? But it is that heart story about why you care, the story about impact, maybe some kind of a fact that frames the magnitude and the scope of the issue or the cause. And then just say, would you like to know more? Because I'd love to tell you more. We have something coming up. I'd love to have you come into the kitchen and chop vegetables with me on Tuesday, whatever it might be. But you have to think about fundraising as inviting people for the opportunity to come close to something of meaning, to inject some kind of additional purpose. One of the things that I think about, I'm a big baseball fan, and I think about the stands and I think about the field. And I think, and this is why when I talk about being an evangelist, I'm not just an evangelist for nonprofit leaders. I'm also an evangelist for those people who don't get what the nonprofit sector can bring to them personally. And my, I feel like one of my jobs is to figure out how to get more people out of the stands and onto the field, right? And so if I say on this field is humanity, is beauty, is purpose, it's music, right? It's faith, right? Why the hell would you be sitting up there? Yeah. Yeah. Joan, I, I, one of the problems always in conversations like this is they go too fast. Um, I did promise we would get, try to get some Q&A in. I'm, I'm looking at a question from Jody Bromberg. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, Build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. You are a nonprofit CEO now. What are the top three things you would be thinking about, and how would you be thinking about them? Uh, okay, so as I go into 2021, I would think, be thinking about the fundamentals. That's one thing, right? I would be thinking about, okay, I learned things. I learned that I have cracks in my foundation in 2020. I would sit down right now with my organization and say, what did we learn about what we're really good at and mm. what our vulnerabilities are? Let's make sure we play to our strengths and we have a plan for dealing with some of our vulnerabilities. That might be diversity of revenue, for example, if you got crushed because your gala got canceled. So paying attention to the fundamentals. And, and under that, the subset of that is prioritizing and saying, based on what we have, we need to stop doing, we need to do more of this and less of that. The second thing we just talked about is that you have to take, you have to take innovation with you. And you might have to market the hell out of that to your board because boards can be risk averse. Boards, they think of themselves in the oversight and monitoring business, right? They don't necessarily think of themselves in the innovation business, which is kind of a, 
it's an irony because mm. these organizations get started because of innovation, but we can suck the life out of that. So innovation, test, pilot, try new things and market the hell out of that to your board. The next one is pay attention to your boards. Start to think about the board as an important engine in your jet. Start to think about exactly what kinds of skills you need and stop apologizing to people and telling them it really won't be a lot of work. People who join boards are type A, high performers who are used to getting A's on their book reports. So, so put them in a good class and let them get an A and partner with them. Those are the kinds of things that I would think about. And also just for your own sense of self, remember that what you do isn't just nice. It's critical. I think you mentioned at one point a guy, a man or a woman who was running a nonprofit who didn't know the names of his or her staffers' kids and that that person should not be in that job. Um, so I'm just wondering, who is cut out to run a nonprofit? Um, one of the things that I talk about is managing in three dimensions. And that's actually the gift that the nonprofit sector gave to me, having come from the private sector, is that it isn't just a nice thing to do to ask people how they're doing, right? How was their weekend? It's not just a nice thing. You, you're not, not going to get a year-end bonus as a staff member. There's no year-end bonus, right? Mm -hmm. The bonus is the joy, the privilege, being seen and valued, your voice being heard. I talk a lot about that. You've got to make sure your staff feels really heard. And, um, you know, one of the things that I talk about in one of the chapters, and I kind of clown around a little bit with superheroes, but that you need, and that's, uh, you can, I don't know if you can see him. Can you see Kermit up there on my, uh, <laughs> on my bookshelf? So Herman is on my bookshelf because I think that he has the attributes to be a great nonprofit leader because he actually is really passionate about the things he's passionate about, that he brings a group together. He hears all the voices. He clearly values diversity. And I also like to add that he actually knows how to deal with high maintenance folks. So, you know, if, if you, if you, if you take Miss Piggy and you, and then take that to your high maintenance board chair, you're micromanaging fill in the blank or your high end donor who wants extra seats at the gala table, right? Um, that it's attributes that matter. I think that's what we talk about in the book, Jim, is that like I had never, I had never asked people for money before, right? But I had the attributes. I'm a good communicator. I care about the organization. I'm self-aware. I have an ego, but it's not ridiculously overinflated, I, I like to think, right? It's attributes that make a great, a great staff member and a great leader. You know, I, I haven't seen the movie in years, but I'm looking at Kermit and I'm thinking, you know, someday we'll find it, the Rainbow right. Connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Sounds like a good recipe for nonprofit folks, right? <laughs> so, you know, you're talking about a lot of stuff that, I know we can't do it now, but let's hope towards the end of 2021, there'll be enough vaccines out there and we'll get back to face-to-face -to -face in some way, which would allow retreats, which you talk about in the book as not some optional, nice, let's go away, as an essential way to do business. A, tell me about that. And B, if we can't have face-to-face -face retreats, are virtual retreats important? 
Yes and yes. So one of the things that, that you'll read in every other good book about nonprofit governance is that a board is not a group of individuals. It's a team. It's a, it's a collection of kindred spirits who feel an affinity for one another and who are aligned around their own personal values. And trust me, because I do a lot of work with, with organizations that are in leadership transitions, when boards are not that way, when they're not aligned around certain values, they can be easily fractures, you can get a lot of tension, and you can make poor hiring decisions. So that a lot of people who talk about, oh my gosh, you can, can you do a retreat? But God knows I don't want to do an icebreaker. Well, don't call it an icebreaker. Call it something else. But bring people together so that you really understand each other's personal values. Because that actually connects me. And, and the same is true on the staff side, too. Um, so the, the notion that you are a, a body that is, is a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts is absolutely critical. And you cannot do that at a board meeting. You can't. There's just too much stuff to get through. So I believe in it f- deeply for staff and for boards. And you can do some stuff virtually. It's not exactly the same. I did some virtual retreats in 2020. You have to be really, really careful about time and people's ability mm. to focus, right? But it is the opportunity to think for boards and staff to, to take their noses out of the cash flow and the day-to-day and look down the road, to think generatively, to imagine possibilities, and to do that together. And if you don't do that, you get stuck in the day-to-day and you end up doing a lot of activities that take gas out of your tank. You're done right, retreats, fill your tanks to the brim. Mm. And, and while we're talking about the virtual challenge of doing these things, there was another question I just wanted to briefly touch on virtual fundraising Um, somebody had asked about what are the tips for virtual fundraising as opposed to what we're used to doing yeah that's a great question actually by the way I think that zoom uh, you can't really make it the person of the year but like I don't know like the the people the person I, I don't know where we'd be right now without zoom there's a level of intimacy around zoom that's surprising like when you talk to me I could get a few minutes to chat with you about a uh, temple near Tammy, right? Mm-hmm. I'm at home. I'm in the comfort of my own home. I'm sitting in my own chair. It's you and me, right? Yeah. I'm not paying attention to whether I should get the chicken Caesar or should I get it with the salmon, right? There's, there's, there's not a lot of distraction. And I might actually have more time than you think I do, right? So you mm-hmm. can actually engage in a real conversation and you can ask people how they're doing and you're looking at their house and you're going to say, Joan, did you really win an Oscar? No. Um, you know, so there's an intimacy there that's surprisingly good. The second thing, I'm a really big fan and I think a lot of people have been successful in this in 2020 is what I, what I would call salons, right? Is where you bring a number of donors together and you can bring in somebody that you might not otherwise be able to afford to bring in who can speak and enrich your donors about the sector to update that to a client can come on and talk about how the work has touched them. And mm. so you nurture, cultivate, and steward your donors in a virtual environment really, really nicely, actually, with more opportunity than you might have at an in-person thing. So that leads me to one other thing, which is I think that 
we got pretty good this year because everybody was vulnerable and asking people how they were doing. And I told you this story and I'll just tell it really quickly. In, in like April or something, Eileen and I got a call from the president of our synagogue, Josh Katz. And I look at my phone and the first thing I think to myself is, oh, nuts, are we, are we overdue with our membership dues? And Eileen's like, no. And so I pick up the phone. Josh Katz just really wanted to know how we were doing. And when it was time for us to renew our pledge to the synagogue, we remembered that. Yeah. That's about nurturing and stewarding and keeping your tribe close so that as 2021 starts to turn the corner a little bit, your people are close to you. And then they can be those ambassadors that can help you grow the army of people who need to know and do more for, your, for the work that you do. One more question about a word that I kept encountering over the course of reading your book. Because messy was wonderful, but there was another word. Grit. And I want to ask you about the importance of grit in the successful functioning of any nonprofit. So let's say whether it's Tony's Kitchen in Montclair or whether you are, you know, working for an LGBT organization where you get hate mail or, you know, fill in the blank. The work is really hard. You are face to face with society's greatest ills. You meet people every day for whom the playing field is not level. It's really hard work. It's not work you can really easily put aside at the end of the day and say, I had a good day at the office. It stays with you, but you chose it, right? And it requires you to dig deep for that kind of grit. Um, I do really like that word, that kind of grit that enables you to power through. It's grit that took these small organizations, and I run a membership site for thousands of board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. And you know, people who run $100,000 organizations and managed to do remarkable things when their volunteers disappeared on them. Mm. It took grit. It's not for the faint of heart to be in the nonprofit sector, but who wants to be the faint of heart? Right. As I always say, you know, to our kids, nobody fails. They just stop trying. And you need grit. So with that as a sort of setup, I know that you felt pretty strongly about uh, just sharing something from the last chapter with us as a final I thought. I do. And I, I wanted to just say just two quick things before I do that. Um, one is um, that... So there's a button at the bottom of the screen to buy the book, and I hope that you will do that uh, as a way of supporting an independent bookstore. I think way too often all of us are just way too quick to go online and select other easier ways, but we've got to support our community small businesses. I mean, if not now, when? So that's the first thing. And look around. I love going to watch on booksellers and I always end up buying more books than I came in to buy. And I think you'll find the same thing watch on booksellers.com. The second thing is that I, um, I I did do a webinar. I have a webinar that's out and about that's free, also free. And it is called tough times, tougher nonprofits, how to thrive in times of uncertainty. And it also is an hour long and someone is going to toss it in the chat too but I believe it's joangary.com forward slash tougher. 
it'll come in. I might not have got that completely correct, but I think you will find both more actionable tips than we were able to do today and some resources that we send you that I think would be really helpful. The next thing I want to say also is we think about books like this and we say, okay, the executive director should read this book. I wrote it for board members too, because they have really important jobs. And there's a chapter in here that I think will help you to understand exactly how important your job is, how valuable it is and how meaningful it is. So I, I encourage that thinking. The last thing I just want to say is that the membership site that I run is called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. And it is intended for that 70% of the 1.5 million people who run small shops. Mm. And um, it's only open every once in a while. And actually it is um, because we like to create a real sense of community there, but it's going to be open this coming Monday. So if you want to learn more about it, you can go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com. That will also show up in the thread. If that's something that's interesting to you, um, this is kind of an appetizer to the sort of range of things resources and uh, moral support that I offer across the spectrum. So um, so I just uh, wanted to just say those things, if you don't mind. And um, the last chapter of this book is called You Are the Champions. And I just really quickly just want to read the last paragraph as a way to close out and remind you that you were the superheroes, that this was in many ways that 2020 was the, the year of the dot org. It's the place where leadership really resided when we were so hungry for it and couldn't see it elsewhere, I think we saw it with you. So the last chapter, and I'm not reading a whole chapter, just a paragraph here. I write, I know who you are. I write to you and for you every week. Your clients, you're the folks I support in the nonprofit leadership lab, your fellow leaders, your board colleagues of mine, and board members I worked to recruit. You educate our young people. You deliver meals. You work to cure illnesses and fight the stigma often associated with them. You fight for equality for women, people of color, LGBTQ folks. You provide beds to the homeless and put battered women back on their feet. You are storytellers who do not allow us to forget. You protect our lands and you navigate a complex world for those who are new here. You remind society of the power of religion and remind us of the power of deep faith. You bring music, theater and dance to us and in so doing you make us think you make us feel and you lift us up and that's it you lift us up and for every one of you who do that thank you so much joan just want to express my gratitude for the work you do in making the world a much better place jim axelrod you are an awesome guy and i wanted to just thank you for having a conversation with me tonight Hey, thanks for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thanks for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.